Hello to all of my optimizer readers and listeners. Today's episode is going to be just a little bit different in that I am not the host, I am the guest. This is a recent interview that I did with Michael Bowman on the Success Engineering Podcast. You're going to hear me talk very candidly about the identity crisis that I suffered several years ago while I was seemingly at the height of my career editing Empire, but I was also spending months on end putting my kids to bed via FaceTime, and I realized that I just didn't want to live my life that way anymore. You're also going to learn in this interview how I slowly chipped away at the incredible case of imposter syndrome that I had when I was building the Optimize Yourself program, as well as some deeply emotional stories about why it is that I do what I do. I highly recommend after listening that you check out Michael's work on his success engineering website, where you're going to find blog posts, book summaries from the four books that Michael used to help him optimize his own life, and of course, his podcast episodes, all of which is at successengineering.org. So now, without further ado, my interview with Michael Bowman over at Success Engineering. I had just hit what in my mind was the pinnacle of my career. I was editing the season one finale of Empire. Here I am editing a piece of content that I know for a fact is going to be seen by 25 million people. I was doing FaceTime calls with my children every single night, putting them to bed. Love you, can't be home again tonight, I'm working. And my son who was five years old at the time thought the phone was hung up and he's like, why doesn't daddy love us? Why doesn't he want to put us to bed at night? I was like, this is just not worth it. How does our definition of success shape how we live our daily lives? Join me, your host, Michael Bauman, as we learn from some of the top leaders and experts in the world, from CEOs to neuroscientists, Broadway directors, and more, about how to engineer success in every area of our lives. Welcome to Success Engineering. So welcome back to Success Engineering with your host, Michael Bauman. So I have the privilege of having Zach Arnold on. He's actually an award-winning Hollywood film and television editor. So he's done work on Glee, on Empire, Burn Notice, and actually most recently on Cobra Kai. So he's the creator of Optimize Yourself program, which is about intentionally prioritizing actually having a work-life balance while at the same time optimizing your creativity and your productivity. And then when he's not doing that, he's running Tough Mudders, he's doing Spartan races, he's training to be a contestant on American Ninja Warrior, on top of being a dad and a husband. So I'm just, I'm really excited for this conversation. Welcome to the show, Zach. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I'm kind of exhausted just listening to that. Like, <laughs> that guy sounds like he's trying to do a lot. He sounds a little insane. I don't know if I'd wish that uh, that list of goals and calendar on my worst enemy. He sounds kind of nuts. <laughs> well, well, we'll get into that. So you you definitely had more of a worst enemy period of time. And now you you appreciate yourself more and have made more time for, for our priorities and done that in a very effective way. So I'm excited to mm -hmm. talk about that. Yeah, me too. So I'm going to dive in. I'm not going to I'm not going to hold back here. We're just going to we're going to go straight to the punch. I want to talk about a, a quote or um, essentially a quote from one of your kids that basically just said at a certain point in your life, your your kid goes, why doesn't daddy want to be home um, to put us to bed at night? And why doesn't he love us? And I want you to kind of unpack that and give the background of what got you up into that point. 
So we're going to start with easy, the, the softball we, questions. Just the softball. Yep. I love it. All right, yeah, let's just, you're, you're like me. Let's just dive right in. We're now, just, like, so yeah. give us a little bit of your background. Where did you grow up? It's like, so tell me about the deepest, darkest moment of your entire career where you had a horrible identity crisis. All right, let's go. Let's get started. <laughs> Here we uh, are. So, yes, uh, to, to, to kind of clarify and give a little bit of context to this, it was give or take about five or six years ago. And I had just hit what in my mind was the pinnacle of my career. I had spent, give or take, about 15 years really busting my hump, trying to make it and climb the ladder from the bottom to the top in the editorial world in both feature films and television in Hollywood. I originally came from a farm on northern Wisconsin, so there was never any illusion in my mind that Hollywood was even like a real thing or a job. It was like, mm. wait, you can get paid to do that? Movies and TV just existed. They were there. I realized one day that it is actually a craft and it's something that I could do for a living, came out to L.A. and worked as hard as I could to bring me to the point where, give or take 15 years later, I was editing the season one finale of Empire. Mm -hmm. And for those that might not be familiar with the show, that's fine. But essentially, season one of Empire was breaking decades worth of ratings records, and it was a giant cultural phenomenon. It was on every entertainment magazine. It was in New York Times and Everywhere, people are like, where did this show come from? It was the biggest network show in years. And here I am sitting in a small dark room with no windows, editing a piece of content that I know for a fact in less than two weeks is going to be seen by 25 million people. Wow. To somebody that was editing wedding videos and bar mitzvahs when he was a teenager, like <laughs> that's the definition of success, is it not? Like right. I've quote unquote made it. It doesn't get any better than that. And I'm the man simultaneously i was doing facetime calls with my children every single night putting them to bed because in hollywood you don't work eight nine ten hour days like your minimum is a 12 hour day if things are kind of slow and you put in more than that nights and weekends to be able to meet the absolutely insane deadlines and pressure that they put upon us so i just routinely put my kids to bed via facetime every single night and the quote that you alluded to happened after my wife thought she had hung up the phone. I was sitting there saying, hey guys, you know, love you, can't be home again tonight, I'm working. And my son, who was five years old at the time, thought the phone was hung up and he's like, why doesn't daddy love us? Why doesn't he want to put us to bed at night? I was like, I'm out, that's it. Like, mm. this is just not worth it. And I, I literally had an identity crisis. The problem being, I spent my entire, not only adult life, but much of my youth from the time I was nine years old with only one identity in my mind. I am going to be the best film editor of all time. Mm. I'm going to rise to the ranks and I'm going to win all the Oscars. And this is who I am and what I do. And the realization I came to is I don't want to live my life this way for the next 30 years. It's no longer worth the payoff that I see at the end of the road. But I have nothing else that I can do to support my family. And how can I continue doing something to support my family that doesn't support my family? Mm. That was a horrible catch 22 that I was in the middle of and it basically caused a complete and total breakdown realizing that this was my definition of success at the time and I felt like a complete and total failure because having 25 million people watch my work was completely empty knowing that my family felt neglected and that was the the beginning of a, a journey that led me to being an entrepreneur and finding a way to start doing all the things you've talked about balancing of which I know we'll get a lot more into but that was basically the the aha moment that I can't live my life this way anymore yeah and I really want to, you know, dive into that a, a little bit more. First off, I appreciate you, you know, being willing to to share it. Um, 
I, I can't imagine, you know, just I have a four-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old. And so same kind of thing, thinking thinking about that, if my four-year-old were to say that, um, how just devastating that is. And like you talked about, there's just a direct dichotomy, a direct comparison between like, I have all of this, 25 million people viewing the content that I'm creating, that, you know, I'm making beautiful and just, you know, fascinating. And then it, my son is like, why doesn't he love me? Like, why, why does he want to put us to bed at night? And it's, this is nothing like on that scale. It just, it's nothing. Yeah. And the, the, the toughest thing about it, it took me years to really dig in and figure this out, but it led to so much depression and anxiety and self-loathing. And I realized that ultimately what was happening, what was consuming me inside was guilt. And I couldn't figure out where the guilt was coming from. And I realized it was a misalignment between my perceived identity and my actual identity, which is where the identity crisis came from. Mm -hmm. My identity in my own mind was I am a great and present and supportive father and husband. That's who I was. And at that moment was a reflection in the mirror of, oh, I'm actually not all of the things that I think that I am. And that was a really tough realization. And I didn't realize it at the moment. But after having done extensive work through personal development, professional development, therapy, I realized that what was consuming me inside was the guilt of me thinking I was a present and supportive father and husband, and I wasn't. That was the hardest part, was to come to that realization and accept it and take responsibility for it and then make changes. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that journey of how you how you went from that point to later on even becoming aware of that that difference there? And between the perceived reality and the actual actual reality and some of the things that you did to work to uncover that? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a combination of diving into a lot of personal development books at first and then listening to a bunch of podcasts. I was just kind of going all over the podcast circuit, listening to all the experts and getting into people like Tony Robbins and Brandon Burchard and all these people that were working through this stuff. Uh, And I went to a couple of events and started to dig a little bit deeper into some of that. And then ultimately I went into psychoanalysis to really understand how is it that I'm wired? Like, why am I wired the way that I am driven so much towards success? And then what I realized, and, you know, this is something we can maybe go into or not. I don't know how deep or dark a hole this might be. And maybe it it fits in perfectly to what uh, you talk about on your show. But I realized that my ultimate fear was not failing. My ultimate fear was succeeding at something big. So I had this identity that I had to keep working and working towards something, but ultimately I didn't deserve it. So there was some self-sabotage that was holding me back from really achieving the things that I wanted to. And without, you know, going through my entire history and, you know, regurgitating 20 sessions that I did, it came back to the relationship that I had with my parents and growing up and the models that I had seen. And I was more afraid of succeeding than failing. And that was really holding me back and causing all of these issues with anxiety and guilt and depression. And once I figured that out, that's when things started to change. And I realized I don't have to be just this one thing. I had to eliminate the identity. I have the only version of success for me. If I can say at the end of my life that I have quote unquote succeeded is an Oscar. Took me a long time to accept that. Now I could give two you know what. I could care less if I win awards. But the version of me five or 10 years ago would think that was crazy because it was all about that. Mm-hmm. But it was ultimately realizing that there was there were a lot of things that I was doing to hold myself back from being successful because I actually feared that more. Mm. 
So what was that uh, like one moment? You, know, you said there was 20 sessions and then you, you came to that realization. Was that a pretty dramatic shift or what did you start doing after that point to take out some of those barriers that you had limiting your success or be more accepting of where you were, where you wanted to be? Yeah. So I think that uh, ultimately with any kind of major change, it's not going to happen overnight. What happened with my son that night uh, during the FaceTime call, that was the instigator, right? That was the the spark that lit the fire. But it's not like all of a sudden I woke up the next morning and I'm like, ooh, I'm having an identity crisis. And I feel really guilty about the fact that my identities are in misalignment with who I think I am versus who I actually am. And I really have misaligned visions of where I was like, it, it, that didn't happen the next morning. It took years for me to be able to talk about it and package it concisely. But what I was dealing with ultimately is something I know that a lot of entrepreneurs deal with. I mean, I would guess that pretty much all of them do. And the creative professionals that I work with, they all deal with the same thing. It's imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, when I was uh, at that moment with Empire, I hadn't, I hadn't built any kind of a business yet, but I was playing business. I had a podcast. I'd been doing it for a couple of years and wasn't making any money, uh, but it was a fun little hobby where I was introducing some of the strategies that I was using as an editor to stay more active and fit. Because um, everybody used to say, like, how are you staying so healthy when you work so many long hours? And, you know, I talked about my standing desk and my treadmill desk and, you know, I would run a Spartan race and it just kind of became this fun thing that kind of turned into a real thing and it really took on in my industry. But then all of a sudden, when I realized that I had to make a major change, well, maybe it's time for me to turn this into a real business and figure out how to monetize it. That's when I hit the biggest wall of imposter syndrome I've ever run into in my life. And frankly, I'd never dealt with it before. I have talked to so many creative professionals, a lot of editors, composers, writers, directors that all feel like I just don't think I'm good enough to edit the show or write this music or direct this show. I've never experienced that. I've always been confident in my ability to edit and tell stories. It doesn't mean that I know everything. I'm always willing to learn more and grow, but I've always had confidence that I'm good at what I do. As soon as I entered the world of business, oh boy, that did not translate. I realized that I had a gigantic amount of imposter syndrome, which was leading to this fear of success, thinking, um, again, not going into the deepest, darkest depths because it'll take too long. Uh, But really, it came down to who am I to think that I can make a living and build a successful business? I'm just an editor. I've always worked for other people. I'm just a craftsperson. I'm not one of the big name directors or one of the showrunners. I'm not Steven Spielberg. So who am I to think that I can build my own thing and tell other people how to live their lives in a healthier, more successful way? And the imposter syndrome got so bad that I couldn't write an email to my list. Mm -hmm. I spent six months without writing one email to my list because I felt like such a fraud. And it took me extensive work to get through that. And the way that I overcame it, based on one of the the questions kind of coming back long-winded to the beginning of your question, is that I chipped away at it one tiny bit at a time. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like I woke up one morning and I said, I'm not an imposter anymore. I'm good (laughs) at this, right? It was so subtle. And still to this day, I get on a Zoom call with my students and I'm like, they're really paying me to coach them? Like, really? Like, they know I'm struggling with life too. Um, but I, you know, I'm, I'm on the same journey as them. I happen to be a little bit further down the path so I can help them find the pitfalls, shortening their learning curve. That's worth something to them. But I, I stopped kidding myself thinking that I cracked the code or I had figured it out and I had all the secrets. And instead it was reframing to, I'm a mess just like you, but some of the things you're going through, I've already overcome. Here's how I did it. 
And as I started to chip away at that identity slowly and I started to chip away, you know what? I'm just going to write one message. And if I don't have a 100% unsubscribe rate, I'm going to write one more message. <laughs> and it was this really slow progression. And then it was, you know what? All right, the email seemed to be working. I'm going to try and write an article again. It took me almost a year to write an article. And I loved writing, still do. Wrote the article, got nothing but positive feedback. It was great. All right, let me try another article. And then it was just this slow chipping away. And it's never going to go away. But I realized that if I just made these little wins every single day, the imposter syndrome went went to a little, little bit less, a little bit less, a little bit less. And then, of course, I decided that I wanted to become an American Ninja Warrior and was attacked by the giant biggest monster of imposter syndrome ever that was 10 times larger than the previous <laughs> one. So... It's like your your typical you know um, Joseph Campbell you know hero kind of story. You just keep facing uh -huh. a bigger a bigger monster. <laughs> yep. Just when I feel like I've accomplished one thing and I've got it figured out, I'm going to find something that's even scarier and crazier and try and conquer that monster next. That seems to be my pattern. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's let's talk about. Um, you gave a really important. A really important thing there. So, you know, you have these these monsters that you're literally, you know, facing um, imposter syndrome. You have, you know, anxiety. You have all this this stuff, um, you know, the the stories you're telling about success, you know, things about American Ninja Warrior. But what you did is you were like, I am just going to first I'm going to start and I'm going to do a tiny little thing. So that's really central to kind of your overall philosophy for life right now. Can you can you talk about and you can go in whatever area you want, whether it's productivity, whether it's, you know, exercise. I'm fascinated with the exercise to movement. So talk about the all or nothing approach. And then in comparison with just going like, let's just do something and move towards where we want to go. Yeah. So basically what I've discovered and when I say discovered, I mean discovered for myself, not for the world, because there are many people in the world that already knew this. But when it clicked for me, I realized this is basically the key to being successful in anything in life. It's incrementally choosing something that you can do, but it's harder than the version you can do now that's uncomfortable. And there's a name for this, and I'm sure there are many names for it, but the name that I use, because it's really the time that it clicked for me, it's what James Clear, the writer of Atomic Habits, um, he's somebody that I've had on my podcast and devour his content. He's basically, I, he's he's on a really big pedestal in my world. I know that he's just a regular guy, but in my head, James Clear, it's a pretty high pedestal, right? He's, <laughs> it's, um, but he is for him, it's called the Goldilocks rule. Right. If you choose something that's so incredibly difficult that you're going to be nothing but discouraged, you're going to quit. If you also choose something that's too easy, that you can accomplish very simply without a lot of discomfort or um, really having to push yourself into a place that you're not used to. You're also going to quit because it gets boring. So you find the sweet spot, not too hard, not too easy, just right. And for me, it doesn't matter if it's being an entrepreneur. It doesn't matter if it's being an editor. It doesn't matter if it's being a ninja warrior. I say, all right, what is it that I can do now? What's the harder version of that? That I know that I can do it if I really stretch myself. And where this really came together, like you said, to kind of go in any direction, um, American Ninja Warrior is the simplest way to explain it. I can bring it back to online business and you know business models and whatnot as well. But with American Ninja Warrior, it's so simple to explain this. So when I decided at the end of 2017, uh, basically what happened was uh, what I, when I was telling you about the whole identity crisis and everything else, uh, 2017, I call my lost year. Basically, a giant chasm of wasted productivity. 
Other than waking up and going to my job to make sure that my bills were paid and we weren't destitute, I accomplished nothing. That's the year that I couldn't write emails. I didn't build any products. I didn't write any articles. I had this huge gap where I was rebranding my business and I decided I'm just, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to show up to work and I'm going to be in the fetal position the rest of the day and tell myself that my family probably doesn't need me anymore. That's 2017 in a nutshell. I came out of that and I spent, I don't know, it must have been maybe November and December of 2017 watching just one season after another back seasons of American Ninja Warrior because somebody had introduced it to me. And mind you, I'm watching it over 200 pounds with a bowl of popcorn on my lap with a bunch of Oreos in that bowl. So it's just, it's like the perfect image. And I'm watching this and like, I want to do this. Not like, oh, that would be fun. Like, I want to do this. Like something is telling me inside that this is for me. It's the exact kind of community of people that I want to be involved with. It's about really stepping outside your comfort zone. It's inspiring people with physical disabilities, mental disabilities, Just and otherwise. Really briefly, because you know I have audience all over the world. So for the, can you briefly describe American Ninja Warrior for those of um, my oh yeah that sure. Yeah, so American Ninja Warrior is basically uh, an, an advanced obstacle course for elite obstacle course athletes. Um, so at the end of the day, it is a TV show. It's not like a legitimate sport, or at least it wasn't back then. They're starting to build it into a legitimate sport now. Um, and they have it all over the world. They have it uh, in the East. I know that they have like um, Thailand Ninja Warrior and Vietnam Ninja Warrior, and I don't know if they have it in China or not, but I, I know that they have it actually Japan maybe. Like the idea. Yeah, well, but. it started in Japan, yes. Uh, but they have it all over the world and in most uh, first world countries. But the point is that you're going on these insanely difficult obstacles where a lot of it's grip strength, swinging from one bar to the next in these weird contortionist positions, 15 feet above water. All the things that editors never do in their lives ever. Um, and I, I have no athletic background that applies to Ninja Warrior. I did martial arts quite a bit when I was younger, when I was in high school and college, never did gymnastics, never did parkour, never played basketball, any applicable skill, track and field didn't matter what it was. I didn't have it. But the cool thing was that unlike any other competitive sport, anyone can be on American Ninja Warrior. They have former Olympic athletes. They have NFL athletes, and they also have 70 year old grandfathers. And I'm like, I have no excuse. I can be on this show if I apply myself. But I was in a position where it was the worst year of my life. I was in horrible shape. And I just sat down with my wife at the end of the year during the holidays, right in this room where I'm uh, doing the call from right now. I said, I've got a really crazy idea. She's, she looked at me. She's like, well, yeah, because like, I always have crazy ideas. <laughs> like if I said I have a normal idea, she'd be like, what? You have a normal idea? So when I said crazy idea, she's like, yeah, what is it? I said, I think I want to be an American Ninja Warrior. And she looked at me and she's like, yeah, I can see that. I'm like, that's it? She's like, yeah, I can totally see that. I'm like, okay. So You found a, you found a good fit. You found the right one. Exactly. So the beginning of 2018 is when it started. One of the first things I did was I signed up for a Spartan race. Wasn't the first time I'd done Spartan races and Tough Mudders for a few years. So it wasn't like that was a big revelation. But I hadn't done them for a while. And the first test for me, the closest obstacle that they have at a Spartan race that's similar to Ninja Warrior is they have swinging rings. So basically you have these rings and you swing from one to the next and it's maybe, I don't know, eight or 10 rings across. And I'm like, all right, well, if I can get across this, it's going to be a good start. And I feel like, you know, this, this is going to be the, the kind of my launching point to say I can do this. I grabbed one ring. I didn't have the strength to swing to the second. That was it. I'm like, I literally grabbed it, slipped right off. I'm like, all right, so... 
<laughs> I can't swing from one ring to a second, and I think I'm going to be a ninja warrior. But there are two things that can happen at, at a place like that. So this is a metaphor for anybody that says, I want to achieve a big goal. Here's the first step. I failed massively. It can either be failure or it can be feedback. And I said the feedback is I don't have the forearm strength or the core strength to hold my weight on one ring and swing to the next and grab it. So that means that my entire reason for being right now is building the strength necessary to grab the next ring. It's not about getting on American Ninja Warrior. It's about how do I grab the second ring? What does that take? What do I need to ask the trainer to work on? What, how do I lift the weights? Or how do I use the pans? What do I do with my, my legs? Whatever it is, my entire reason for being is grabbing the second ring. And I took that approach for months. I went to a, a stadium event, a, Spart a Spartan event that's in like a baseball stadium. They had the exact same uh, ring obstacle that I fell on the first one. And I went all the way across all 10 of them, and it was effortless. It was like I was weightless. I was like, all right, now I can get started. Like that was a moment. It wasn't like I can be an American Ninja Warrior. It was, all right, now I can start my training because I've gotten over the first thing, and I've applied that same philosophy ever since. If I'm climbing a rope and I make it 18 feet, well, then tomorrow I need to get to 19 feet. So it's all about this incremental progression where no matter the goal, what am I capable of now? How do I do something just a little bit harder tomorrow that's not going to discourage me because it's so without uh, it's so outside the realm of possibility? Yeah, that I mean, you can't overstate how tremendous that that tool is. I use a very, you know, kind of similar, similar thing. You know, obviously 2020, these last couple of years have just been crazy and I just break it down and I go like, what's the tiniest little thing that I can do and be consistent with, you know? So it's like, I'll, you know, do five squats after I go to the bathroom, right? I'll do like at least five push-ups in a day, you know, or I'll have these little five minute, like maybe I'm doing five minutes of jump roping or, or five minutes of a little stretching routine. And I, I, you know, everybody talks about maximums, right? They're like, maximize your life, maximize your potential, maximize your gains, you know, whatever. And I, I look at the minimum, like what's the minimum consistent thing that I can mm -hmm. do. And then can you talk actually how you take these, these little tiny, tiny habits, tiny steps that you're doing and actually implement them into your day? Cause that's something that you do phenomenally well in the context of pretty crazy, crazy work. Sure. Yeah. So I can definitely talk about it with the caveat and the disclaimer that it appears to you on the outside that I do it extremely well. <laughs> I struggle with this just as much as anybody else. Sure, I put together the plans and I say, here's how to build your routines for being more active and doing this and that. I have entire days where I execute none of it. So I wanna set that expectation very clearly. I'm a work in progress just like anybody else. But again, I've been doing it for long enough that what I consider a work in progress, most people would be like, oh my God, I'd love to stay that active throughout the day. But for me, it's always a work in progress. There are days when I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna make sure I do X number of push-ups or pull-ups or this or that. And at the end of the day, I'm like, I've done nothing. So <laughs> setting that expectation, but it really goes back to the same idea of what's the, what's the goal right now. And it's not about my goal is to be super successful. An example would be my goal is as an entrepreneur to be less sedentary at the end of my day, after 12 hours in front of the computer, writing or selling or coaching, whatever the entrepreneur um, tasks might be. If you feel like you've been absolutely hit by a Mack truck, one of the biggest reasons is because you're probably not active enough. If you sit all day long and you're sedentary, it destroys your body. And it also, by the way, destroys your ability to be creative and be productive. But you can ask yourself, 
what is it that I can do? We're going to make it hard, but what is it that I can do? The first place that I always start with my clients is I say, is it too much to be able to take one 15 minute break in the afternoon and walk around the block? They're like, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm usually pretty busy and it's hard to step away from the desk. And like, but can you do it? Yeah. Does it make you feel uncomfortable? Yeah. Perfect. That's where we start. <laughs> if if I said, can you do a 15 minute walking? Like, yeah, that's simple. Great. Now we make it 20. Right. But the the idea is you start with finding something you can do, but it's just a bit of a stretch. So if the goal is to be less sedentary, start taking walks. Or if you don't have one already, get a height adjustable desk and not just get the desk and set it at it all day long. And when people say, hey, how do you like your desk? Oh, I love it. But yeah, I don't really use it that much. And I mostly sit at, but it's great. It looks great. It's like, let's actually get the function out of it. Right. So another misnomer or assumption that people make about me, I stand on my desk all day long. Oh, no, no, no. I do not stand on my desk all day long. I am moving up and down all day long consistently. But if somebody's saying I sit all day long, but they want to start moving and standing up, you get a standing desk. You try it for 15 minutes one day. If you're like, well, that was easy. Great. Try it for 30 the next. You say, I already do it for an hour a day. Awesome. Do it for two. You find the sweet spot where it's just right. It's hard enough, but you can still do it. And if you want to do it with push-ups, you want to do it with squats, Whatever it might be, choose something that's applicable to your goals. If you say, my upper body just feel so weak right now, and I used to be able to do 50 push-ups when I was in the service 30 years ago. Now I can't do a single push-up. Okay, well then, see how many you can do now. This is actually an exercise I'm doing with my father as we speak. He's 80 years old, and he realized I can't do a push-up anymore. And he came to me and said, I want to be able to do like five real push-ups by Christmas. How do I do it? I said, you find an incline at which you can do more than one. So like getting dining room chairs, sofas. He's like, all right, I can do two incline push-ups. I'm like, great. Now do one three times a day. And now he's when he does that, he's like, oh, that's actually not that hard. I can do like four or five of them. Great. Now do three, three times a day. Okay, I can do that. Great. Now lower the incline or try it on your knees. He's like, I can do like three knee push-ups. I'm like, great. Now do two, three times a day. And he's slowly progressing, but the all or nothing approach is do your max every single day. Push yourself. No pain, no gain. Right? But it doesn't work. It's not sustainable. Yep. Yeah. So the, the thing that drives me so crazy about fitness and nutrition and everything else, and um, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm going to leave that soapbox in the other room because it's a large one. It's going to take me a while to drag in here, but I'll, I'll do it for the tiniest bit. The all or nothing approach makes gazillions of dollars. The reason it makes all that money is because it doesn't work. If it worked, people wouldn't need to find the next program every 90 days or every New Year's. Long-term sustainable lifestyle change does not make billions of dollars, but it works. It's just not sexy and it's slow and requires an immense amount of patience and consistency. But if I have one superpower, actually, I would say that I have two superpowers. The reason that I am where I am and consider myself a success, and we might you know, get a little bit deeper into what that means now, because I know it's kind of built into the title of your show. Um, <laughs> but I believe the two superpowers that I have are, number one, I keep showing up. And number two, I fail a lot faster than most people are willing to. Mm. I just fail fast and often, and I'm unapologetic about it. And you couple those two things together, and you get a lot of progress. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's really, 
Really good. We'll, we'll, we'll get into those a little bit, but I did want to talk, um, you know, for my listeners that know, like I have, you know, background, I was a personal trainer, you know, nutrition coach and stuff like that. And it is a very, there was a lot of things like you mentioned that I don't, don't like at all about the industry. You know, you're talking like 21 day detox, 21 day, you know, cleanse, 21 day challenge, you know, you, you have to go, no, you just spend probably 1% of your life making a change and the other 99 maintaining the change that you have. Right. Yeah. So we'll, we'll leave the soapbox there as well. But I, I, I love what you were talking about, you know, in doing my research where you talk about shifting from exercise to movement. I think that's really, really important because I do the same thing. I'm always looking in my life going, where is there a tiny opportunity for me to move more? So like even right now, same kind of thing. I'm at a standing desk, you know, like I walk. Fortunately, my school for my son is close enough, but, we, you know, we walk to school, you know, and I'm always just going, can I do a little bit more movement during my day? And then I, the ideal world is like, yes, I also got in a workout, but, you know, it's that's kind of the foundation. And so I really, I really like that. Um, approach. So you, you know, you talked about your two superpowers. So let's, let's talk about them a little bit. One, one, you were talking about the ability to be able to fail quickly um, and, and learn from it. So essentially have more feedback, more feedback loops um, than other people. Is that something that you developed through, you know, kind of that process? Or is that something you feel like you've always kind of had that ability to just, I go and I fail a ton and I don't really care how I look doing it? Oh, no. Oh, no, my friend. I am a recovering perfectionist. (laughs) I spent the majority of my life not putting myself out there unless I knew I could be the best from day one. And there was a lot of fear behind that of not being the best. It's just ingrained in me. It's part of my core being that I personally can't accept less than being the best. And I'm not saying that's a good thing, but that's part of who I am. And I've had to, to unwire that and find ways to manage it. Um, I mean, I was the valedictorian of my high school class. I graduated top, I think, 3% at University of Michigan, got a job six days after graduation, got promoted five months after moving to L.A., and I'm editing trailers within two years. I won the Oscar for being a trailer editor. My first feature film that I edited got picked up by Fox Searchlight for $5 million. Just a long (laughs) string of successes, and I thought I was bulletproof. So I, the one thing I had never learned how to deal with was failure. And I didn't realize how important that was because failure wasn't an option. And the first time I was hit with failure, again, huge identity crisis. So again, if we come back full circle to this conversation with my son, that was a form of failure. It wasn't the first time, but it was one of the first times that I really had to look failure in the face and say, this is not how I meant it to be. And this was not my goal. But since then, what I've realized is that the secret to success is not that you're great at everything. It's that you just fail as fast as humanly possible and you try things over and over and over and you can't be afraid to, to fail publicly. That's why I wouldn't write a sales email. That's why I wouldn't do any launches or write an article because I, I wasn't willing to put myself out there and fail. As soon as I embrace that, you know what? If I get a huge unsubscribe rate on this one email or this launch that I do, this product is a disaster. Awesome. Now I've got data. Now I know what to fix and I know there's a problem. So now I get super excited about doing these crazy new things or trying this with my podcast or I'm going to build this course or this workshop because I know that if it doesn't go the way I want it to, I have feedback to work with. And now I iterate way faster than I used to. And that iteration has led to a lot of success. But ultimately, the success came from my willingness to embrace failure and do it publicly. 
which again is what American Ninja Warrior is all about. Me failing as publicly as I can. Right. Can you talk about, and I, I, I might know how you, you're going to answer this, but can you talk about, you know, let's say entrepreneurs who have that same fear, right? They're like, I'm, I'm scared to put myself out there. I'm scared to do this launch. You know, all the things you just mentioned, what would you, what advice would you have for them to, to try to overcome that? So what I found is the best antidote to being afraid of failure is really tiny wins. Again, it kind of comes back to the same uh, same idea. Uh, but an example would be uh, with uh, with my program, with my coaching program, and my clients, and my podcast, and everything else. It wasn't about it wasn't a binary thing. Either my business is a failure or it's a success. It's a failure because I can't make any money, or it's a success because I'm making six figures and I'm supporting myself. That was kind of the way I saw it. Either I'm good at business or I'm bad at it. And right now I'm failing because I can't write an email and I can't generate revenue. But then I said, what if it was about, I just need to get success for one other person. So I'm going to send out an email or I'm going to get one coaching client. And I started to get them wins. I'm like, oh, maybe this thing is working. But can I do it with two? Like, can I really duplicate this and do it with two people? So it wasn't, how do I scale as fast as possible? How do I throw a bunch of people into a Facebook funnel and get three times my ROI? And then all of a sudden I can be Grant Cardone and I've got my jet. <laughs> how do I help one person? Then how do I help two? Then how do I help three? So I started my private coaching practice, developing my materials, knowing that it was all very much in beta and I was workshopping it and letting my students know this is all new and I want to workshop it with you. But then they were getting tremendous success and slowly, one step at a time, it started to chip away at the imposter syndrome and the fact that, oh, I'm, I mean, I'm not succeeding huge, but this isn't really a failure. It's just, you know, it's slow incremental progress with little failures along the way, which again, it's to me, failure is now feedback. So then all of a sudden it was, well, this is crazy. If I've got three clients, what if I put like four of them on the same call? <laughs> In like a group, no way I could ever help four people at once. That's insane. I haven't told that to my business coach. It's like, if you thought about group coaching, I could, I could never help that many people on a call at once. There's no way it has to be private. He's like, just give it a try. So I tried it. I'm like, I'm actually helping four people at a time. This, what, what if I tried five, then five worked. And then I went back to my business coach and this was right around the time the pandemic hit. And I went to him and I said, there's no way that I can run a coaching business. Everybody in my industry is unemployed. We had a 98% unemployment rate in Hollywood wow. when the pandemic hit. Everybody was out of work. And he said, is there a way that we can turn this into an opportunity? I'm like, I don't know how. Like, I just, I think I'm going to have to give this thing up. He's like, I've got a crazy idea. What if instead of helping five people on a call, you help 25? <laughs> right. <laughs> Never going to happen. But I figured it out. Like, how can I make this work so I can drop the price to the place where my followers and the people that are in my industry can afford it because money is so tight, but I can still help them. And it was this slow, iterative process. And I think this semester, I'm going to have like 100 students. All of them might be on a single call. Usually it's like 25, 35 people on a call. But it's gotten to the point where I know that my materials, I'm confident that my materials and the work that I do with creative professionals is helping them and getting them results. So when I send a sales email, it's not, oh God, I'm, I'm being salesy or I'm such a marketer and I don't want to bother these people. It's I know that instead of just statistics and open rates on the other end of that email, there are real people, some of which are going to read this and say, oh my God, this is me and I think this might help. 
That's what drives me to overcome the imposter syndrome. And now that I'm looking at having 100 students in the program and 30 or 40 on a call, it's like, all right, how do we double it? Right. So but I, it's always within the realm of little tiny increments. So it's not just a matter of let's scale and throw a bunch of gasoline on the fire. It's let's use an eyedropper of gasoline, just little bits here and there and make sure that we can manage it and we can contain it. But the, the fact that I was terrified to have five people on a group coaching call is laughable to me now. But the amount of fear that I felt about trying it, it just seemed impossible. But again, it was this small, tiny incremental progress. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit? I mean, you, there, are, you, there are a lot of things that you do to, to help people, but I wanted to talk about, you know, productivity for sure. And then if there's other ones you want to bring up as well. So you have some very, you know, very good systems around productivity and communication, project management, things like that. Can you talk about that and how that'd be helpful for the audience and entrepreneurs? Yes. Do you, uh, are you old enough to remember the TV show Pee Wee's Playhouse? Or are you just like, what's he talking about? Who is this no. old man talking about? <laughs> no? Well, in, in case your audience might know, um, I'll explain it to you. Basically, there was a Pee Wee's Playhouse in the 80s. And there was it was just like a kid show and wacky stuff and all these like talking furniture and whatever. Like If, if you ever want to get high and have an amazing night, watch Pee Wee's Playhouse <laughs> on Netflix. It's amazing. The point being that they had this thing called word of the day. And there was a word, whether it was couch or ceiling or whatever somebody said it everybody went right systems is my word of the day as soon as somebody (laughs) says systems giant bells and whistles go off in my head and i say prepare yourself because oh is this going to be a fun conversation i love systems what i don't love is the conversation about which is your favorite to-do list app drives me crazy (laughs) because productivity has nothing to do with tech I love me some tech. In my program, I teach people how to use Trello. I teach them how to use OmniFocus. I ultimately teach them how to better manage their time and use their calendar to be their to-do list. But ultimately, I teach systems. The reason being that productivity is not about any of the tools, any of the apps, any of the features, any of the, the right-click you know, menu items, all of which are fun little bells and whistles. What I've discovered, and again, my discovery, not I discovered it for the world. I'm not the Christopher Columbus of productivity. But what I discovered for myself that I'm now helping other people discover is that productivity is ultimately about having the confidence that what you're doing next is what you're supposed to be doing. So in my class, specifically my Focus Yourself class, the first six weeks, we don't even talk about calendars or Trello or productivity or how all these systems work. We just talk about what are your goals? Why are you why are you pursuing them? Like what's the deeper why? And what's everything that's standing in the way of your goals? What are the obstacles? Because if you can't identify what to prioritize and what to do next and how it applies to things that actually fulfill you, you're just gonna sit around all day long and say, I know I need to send this email, or I know I'm supposed to brush up my resume, or I should write this blog post, but I just can't get myself to do it. And underneath it all, it's because you lack certainty and confidence that what you're doing is what you're supposed to be doing. So I teach people how to gain confidence that the next thing on their calendar is the one thing on the planet that if they execute for the next 90 minutes will change their life. One tiny piece at a time. Yes. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) That's what I have to say about that. Um, I'm also, you know, I know you've had him on your show and you're a big fan. Um, David Allen's getting things done. 
um, approach. Oh yes, that's a foundation of the of the productivity side of my program. Yeah, I teach that in depth. But again, in an eight module program, that's module five. That's not module one. There's four modules getting into the deep psychology of why don't I believe in myself? Why don't I want to do these things? What are my limiting beliefs? Now that all that crap is out of my head, all right, now let's get some things done. So it's it's a huge part of it, but it's not the first part. That's where most people start. I need to be productive, so I need to get things done, and I need to do the capture process, and then I need to sort into lists, and it's it's all organized. Here's what I'm supposed to do next. Why don't I want to do this? I did the system. I did what he told. Why don't I want to do this? It's because you don't have the confidence. It's what's going to move your life forwards. That's what you're lacking. Can you can you give just a couple questions that you know entrepreneurs could potentially think about to help with those limiting beliefs? Just things that they can mull around in their head to go like, why do I do this? Why do I want to do this? Or why don't I want to do this? What are the limiting things around this? The the first thing that I would think about is what started it all. Right. When I had these, this conversation with entrepreneurs or creatives, yeah, we talk about the process and the journey. You know, I met this person and they opened this door and I got hired on this job. But ultimately, there was some inciting event. There was something that happened where a light switch went on and you said, this is how I want to spend my time and spend my life. So I say, come back to that. Remember where that passion came from first and then really think about what is driving me to continue doing this. Maybe it's just because at one time I realized that um, things are tough and it's the pandemic and I read online that you can get some passive income and you can have some affiliates and start a website and you know sell some products and you can make some money. I've done that for a while and I've created the cushion, but it's not really something I enjoy. So now that I've achieved the objective of making sure I have a safety net during a pandemic, why am I really doing it? Oh, well, maybe I don't need to do it anymore, even though I feel like it's just something I'm, I'm it's a rut that I'm stuck in. Right. As opposed to like for me with, with this program, for example, there have been so many times that I've said, yeah, no, this is hard. I just I think I'm going to quit. I'm just done. Like I've got a good job as a film editor. I've got plenty of uh, financial security. Why do I put myself what I do every single day as an entrepreneur? And then I realized that it's twofold, one of which is the freedom it affords me to manage my own time so I can align with my identity as a present father and a present husband, being able to, to be uh supportive to my family. But then number two, every time that I said I quit and I don't want to do this anymore, I get an email from somebody and they tell me how this podcast or this article, whatever the content is, it's almost always something free, by the way, it's something paid. And they say, I was ready to give up. Mm-hmm. And I realized by looking at this thing or the strategy or this idea you talked about that I'm worth more than I think. And I really need to continue pursuing my dream. And I'm like, damn it. I was just going to quit. Why? Why? Why did you have to do that to me? So for me, it's it's about this this deeper need of sharing the things that I've overcome so I can help other people overcome the same thing. And ultimately, if we have a few extra minutes to really like peel the layers of the onion to the center, um, where it all started, I can tell you the exact moment all of this started. So if we, if uh, you can allow me to, to digress and do a little bit deeper story, Absolutely. if you really want to understand the word why. It goes back to the first day of my senior year of college. I was in a film production class knowing that I was going to move out to L.A. and I was going to be an editor and a filmmaker and I was going to do all this. That was the path. And enrolled, and when I say rolled, I mean literally enrolled a student that looked like he was completely, totally paralyzed. Like you could tell that there was no physical movement and he was, in fact, quadriplegic. 
And I was like, well, that's interesting. I mean, it's it's a production course and you run around with cameras and up and down steps and lights. And it's if it were like a theory course or you write things, maybe I could get it. But it was just kind of like, huh, interesting. But then around me, like all the cool film kids that thought they were going to be the next Scorsese, I could hear them whispering and they said, oh, my God, that kid better not get stuck in our group for the semester. Mm. And that made me mad. It still to this day makes me mad. And I went up to him afterwards. I Sorry, I have a hard time telling this story. Um, I went up to him afterwards and I said, if you need a group, you come to our group. That's the day that my life changed. His name was Christopher Rush. He became my best friend. He, I mean, he was just an astounding human being. Uh, he had, <clears throat> excuse me, he had muscular dystrophy. And he ended up passing away at the age of 30. So this, he ended up passing away like six or seven years after that happened. Um, he stood up in my wedding. His parents are like my parents. And what I didn't know about him because he was so humble is that when he was younger, when he still had the ability to use some of his faculties and he had his arms and whatnot, he was the national poster child for muscular dystrophy and traveled all over the country with Jerry Lewis. Anybody my age or older knows Jerry Lewis and the Labor Day telethons. People younger, they're like, Who? Um, but for anybody old enough, they realize what a big deal that was. I mean, TV networks shut down for the weekend for Jerry Lewis and his Labor Day telethons. Chris was the face of that. Mm. He also was the manager of his basketball team. He was also the very first quadriplegic to ever be licensed to be a scuba diver. Wow. And he also earned a law degree. Now, just imagine not having the use of your hands going through law school, having somebody else turn the pages for you, take notes and write your exams. Shoot me in the face. Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine, but he thrived in those situations. And I discovered almost all of this at his passing. And I said, I need to make a film and I need to share his story. And what I also discovered at his funeral is that he had this motivational program that he was in the beginning stages of developing. It was called the Go Far program. It stood for goals, obstacles, focus, act, and review. And at the time, I didn't really understand the brilliance of it. But over the last 10 years, I built my entire life and my curriculum around those five steps. Like basically the curriculum that I teach and focus yourself and everything else that I do. But the deeper why is he helped me realize that so many people focus on the things they are not capable of. And he always said, don't worry about the things you can't do. Focus on the things that you can do. And first of all, it makes you feel like a real asshole. Wow, you're right. I do kind of focus on all the things that I don't have, and maybe I need to focus on the things that I do. So now every time I think about quitting or I get upset about a poor conversion rate or a launch or whatever, I'm like, it's just feedback, man. Like it's, it's just me trying to help other people figure out what is it that you're truly capable of, and it's just another step in the journey. But if this guy at the age of 14 years old with no use of his arms or his legs said, weight me down and throw me in the ocean, woohoo! Like, how much ability to overcome fear must you have to be willing to do that and put that kind of trust in other people? Mm -hmm. So I just think about that every time I'm like, yeah, this is hard. This is uncomfortable because I know the impact that he had on me and I know the impact he was not allowed to have on more people. So I now see it as my duty and my mission to share his story and his work and expand upon it so that other people can realize I'm worth more and I'm capable of a lot more than I thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's extraordinary. There's somebody that I, I think you'd really like. I had a, a guest on the show. He he used to play rugby and then got paralyzed from the from the neck down. 
Um, he wrote a book called The Big Little Things, but it's all about appreciating the little things. And now he became a, a mouth artist. It's actually pretty incredible. I'm pretty mm-hmm. thankful for his accident too. He's like, my life, I'm happier now than I would have been otherwise, which is pretty, yeah, Isn't that amazing? It's all about perspective. It, it really is. It really is. It determines everything. The stories we tell, you know, what we're, what we're doing in our mind. It, it, it does. So, um, what you have, I mean, it's just incredible. You're helping lots of people. Where, where can people go to connect up with that and, and get a hold of you? Yeah. So, uh, my website is just optimize yourself.me. Um, I've got a whole bunch of other free guides. They can join my newsletter. I know that we talked about the hero's journey. I actually have a whole five day email series where I talk about how to start your own hero's journey and how to embark upon it. Um, if they want to get, I have a, 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 like a 50 page ultimate guide called the ultimate guide to optimizing your creativity, which has nothing to do with being an entrepreneur or business that has to be uh, it has to do with I'm sitting in front of a computer and I need to generate ideas and solve problems. How can I do that better? How can I move more? How can I eat better? How can I be more productive? How do I sleep? Right? How do I maximize my creativity? If they want that, they just go to optimizeyourself.me slash ultimate guide. Yeah, and they could check out your your podcast as well, Optimize Yourself. Yep, just optimize um, yourself anywhere that podcasts are distributed. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. This is, I mean, just tremendously, tremendously helpful. I really appreciate your your honesty, being willing to share, you know, the depth of your story and, you know, wh- where you're at right now. It's 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 amazing and it's real. So I really appreciate that. Yep, and I very much appreciate the opportunity to share it. So it means a lot to me that you had me on today. Thank you. Absolutely.